Tonight we're going to open chapter 6 and we're going to find that things are not so different today as they were then. The church is still the church. People are still people. So I want to pray and then we'll dive into chapter 6. Father, tonight we love you. We believe in you. Our hope is in you. We don't have a backup plan, just you. So we believe your word reveals life. Your word reveals hope and truth. Your word is Jesus. Your Jesus is the word. And we don't believe in something. We believe in you. And tonight I ask you to reveal your word to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Open our minds that we can understand and receive the message of Christ tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. What does the Bible say about lawsuits among believers? Listen carefully to the sentence. Among believers. Christian to a Christian. Here it comes. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. When one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers. Now, when I read that one verse, can you see how far the church has moved from its origins? Can you see how much the church has taken, over, taken on the world? Rather than being the light of the world, the darkness of the world has invaded the light of the church. He says, how dare you? come outside of the church to a secular organization to non-believers to administer justice inside the body of Christ. Can you see two church people taking an issue like this to the elders for a legal binding decision today? Let's just say we have two church people and they've got a grievance against each other. They can't settle it. So can anybody imagine that they call the elders and they stand in a private session to the elders and each one of them states their case and allow the eldership to render a verdict and accept it in advance as absolute in the verdict. No appeals. You see anybody doing that? I've been in this church for 17 years. It hasn't happened yet. Why? If you can't see it, why not? Why not? Are church leaders not qualified to make such judgments inside the body of Christ? Listen, I'm not referring to the church making judgments to the secular in the secular world, but inside the inside the body of Christ is the are the church leadership, in this case the elders, not qualified to render a verdict in such a case? If so, why not? Next verse, verse two. Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? You better stay with me because this is going to get good. Don't you realize that one day believers are going to judge the world? And since you're going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? What's the matter with you? I put that part in there myself. What's the matter with you? Do you know why it isn't done in the church today? What? The church leadership issuing rulings on issues. Do you know why? Because believers don't truly submit to one another in the body of Christ. That was the essence of the church in the beginning, is that there would be a group of people that would agree in advance to submit to each other. And when you stop submitting to one another, then there is no authority. Well, there it is. It's you. And then the person beside you thinks it's them. And the person beside them thinks it's them. And everybody's their own authority. No one submits to each other's authority. It's just, some people believe it's a scriptural concept, not a physical reality. Did you know this? That believers are one day going to judge the world, sit in authority over unbelievers? Now, before I read it to you, I'm going to go to Revelation. And I don't have, I could spend the rest of the night on this topic. Uh, if you've come to any of the past studies, I have addressed some of this in great detail. I won't have time to do it tonight. So I'm going to ask you again. Did you know that the Bible is clear that believers are one day, 
on this present earth going to sit in authority over unbelievers. So if that's the, prob if that's the promise of God during the millennial reign of Christ, what makes you think that they don't have any authority today in the church? One day they're going to sit in authority outside the church. Why can't they have authority at least inside the church today? So in Revelation chapter 20, what's the application? What are we looking for? We believers will judge the world. When? Who, what, where, when? Revelation 20 verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share. Listen carefully. Who, who are we talking about? Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Well, let's, let's figure that one out before we move on. First resurrection. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church at Thessalonica. And he says one day there's going to be a loud shout. There's going to be the voice of the archangel and the trumpet blast, the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And those who remain on the earth, those who are alive, will rise after that. And we will together with them meet the Lord in the air. I have told you now the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who experience the first resurrection. Now, it's coming. I don't know when it's going to come. I don't know the day. But I believe with all of my heart. If you're in the room tonight and you say you believe in Jesus, but you don't believe in that. Really? Because Paul encountered Jesus and Jesus told Paul. He says, I have this directly from the Lord. Paul said that. There's going to be a loud shout, voice of the archangel, trumpet blast, dead in Christ. Only dead in Christ. If you're not in Christ... Sorry about your luck. The dead in Christ are going to rise. What are, what's going to happen? Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. Why? 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 Because as you rise in the first resurrection, you will put on immortal flesh. If you're coming out of a grave, out of the dust, you will turn into a glorified human flesh. Not subject to death. You cannot die. If you happen to be alive, still breathing air when that trumpet goes off, you will rise and also put on glorified, eternal human flesh. Why? Because you're about to meet Jesus in the air. And there's a good chance that it'll be so high that the altitude you won't be able to breathe and you die if you didn't get it first. Say that fast three times. For them the second death holds no power. But they, here he comes. Who are they? Those who rose in the first resurrection. That's the rapture of the church. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for how long? A thousand years. Where? In heaven? Uh-uh. Where? On this earth. Now, who's doing that? Who's reigning? And if you're reigning, you have to ask a logical question. Who are you reigning over? The idea of reigning is you're in authority over someone, something. Who are you in authority over? The word judge. And if you go back up to verse 2, we believers will judge the world. What does it mean? The word judge and in, and in Revelation, it says we're going to be priests of God and of Christ. So look at two words. We're going to judge the world, and we're going to be priests of God and of Christ. The word judge doesn't refer to an eternal judgment. It's not like we're going to judge and say, okay, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. That, that's not what that word implies. What does it imply? Authority. Governing authority. It applies to ruling or reigning over, like a governor, a leader. If you want evidence of that, go back and look before there were kings in the Old Testament, before Saul became the first king, Samuel was the judge. Does that mean he made judicial rulings? Actually, Samuel sometimes did, but that's really not the role of the judges. What did the judges do? They were the rulers. They were like governors. They were administrators of God's justice. 
The millennial kingdom will have resurrected believers. Stay with me. The millennial kingdom, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The word millennial means a thousand. The millennial kingdom will have resurrected believers. Resurrected believers. If you were dead, you resurrected. If you were still alive, you still resurrected. Both are a resurrection unto a new flesh. Into a body that is no longer subject to die. That which is mortal will be replaced by immortality. You can't die. The millennial kingdom will have resurrected believers reigning over people on the earth. People in non-resurrected mortal flesh bodies. Not moral. I left out a T. I just noticed that. Mortal. Immortal reigning on the earth over people who are still in mortal flesh. They are subject to death. Now, do you think churches ought to be able to settle their own disputes? I didn't make this comparison. Paul made this comparison. What? Why are, why are Christians suing Christians? Isn't there anybody in the church that could make such a decision? Do you think that anybody in the church is smart enough to make a decision? One day you're going to be priests of God in Christ. One day you're going to rule over, you're going to be judges over the earth. And can't you find somebody smart enough to make a decision inside the church? Rather going to a judge outside the church who is an unbeliever? Really? What's the matter with you? What's the danger of going outside the church? You subject those in the body of Christ to unbelievers. And you accept their judgment, but you refuse the judgment of a fellow believer. If that wasn't enough to convince you, I told you this is going to get good. If that's not enough to convince you, it gets better. Next verse. Don't you realize that we will judge angels? Okay, Terry, you lost me that time. We're going to what? You tell me you're going to judge people. Believers are going to get a resurrected eternal flesh and rule, reign, administer governmental policy over unbelievers in the millennial reign of Christ. And now you say we're going to judge angels? No, I didn't say it. He did. I didn't write any of that. Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. Now, do you know how preposterous is it going to be to get the job assignment in the millennial kingdom? You're going to judge 12 angels. You're going, to, you're going to make a final disposition for these 12 angels. And you couldn't handle settling the dispute between two women in the church? Really? But you can do angels? Now let's focus on the part that really got your attention. Not the two women in the church. <laughs> let's focus on the part that really got your attention. We're going to judge angels. Who's qualified for that one? Well, if you can judge two women in the church, you can do angels. <laughs> so, when and how? When and how? What, what does he mean we're going to judge angels? Did you, I'm going to ask you, did you know this? Have you read 1 Corinthians? Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. And I, again, I could spend a long time on this, but that's really not the point. I just want you to understand that these things connect. Peter says, For God did not spare even the angels who sin. What are demons? What are demons? They're angels who have joined in the rebellion of Satan. They're demons, they're spirits. They're spirits. They're evil spirits. Demons are evil spirits. Okay? They are heavenly beings. They are created beings. They're not eternal from the perspective they have always been. And some of them rebelled. Now, let me read it again. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell. In gloomy pits of darkness, where they will be held until when? You know they're there now? You know they're there now? 
Not, are all demons in hell? No. Are some demons in hell today? Yes. Some of them have been locked away, waiting judgment that will happen on the day of judgment. Who's going to do it? What did Paul say? You know, go back up to 1 Corinthians 6.3. Don't you realize that we will judge angels? Did you think we were here to serve angels or angels are here to serve people? If I asked you that question, and I wasn't in the middle of 1 Corinthians, and I said, let me ask you a question, church people. Do you think we are here for angels or angels are here for us? Which one? That'd be an interesting question. Hebrews 1.14 answers the question. Therefore, angels are only servants. Spirits. Notice the word. Angels are only servants. They are spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. So who's here for who? Angels are here for us. Now how do you think church, churches should be able to settle their own disputes? Do, do, you, do you think that we ought to be able to inside our congregation be able to settle our own disputes well let's go to verse four back to the topic okay if you have legal disputes about such matters matters why go to outside judges who were not respected by the church it's a good question i am saying this to shame you isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues but instead, one believer sues another right in front of unbelievers. Now, Paul is revealing the danger right in front of unbelievers. The world is watching us do it. So, should a believer sue another believer at all? What's your conclusion so far in, what, uh, six verses? What's your conclusion? Should a believer, should a Christian sue a christian let's say you're not in the same congregation you're in a different congregation should a christian sue a christian you've had a business dealing it didn't happen in the confines of the church building you're in a business outside of here a christian and a christian should a christian sue a christian no why why should you does it mean you can't get um, settlement? No, it didn't say that you're not supposed to get a settlement. Who are you going to ask to do it is the question. Somebody outside? Now, let me, let me make it more complicated. So if Christians should, should not sue Christians, what about Christians and non-Christians? Let's say you're a Christian and you now have a business problem with an unbeliever. Can you take that one to a secular court? Now, my feeling is yes. And the reason is there's no way that unbeliever is going to agree to a, a conclusion with a believer inside the church. Why? He rejects the authority of the church. This is an issue specifically about Christians and Christians, people inside the body of Christ. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a judicial system. We need a judicial system. But there is one for Christians inside the church. There should be another for Christians and outside or unbelievers altogether. Verse 7. Even to have such lawsuits with one another. With one another. Are we talking about non-believers? No, no, we're not talking about non-believers. Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for the church why why not just accept i love this part why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that why not let yourself be cheated in other words let me tell you what that means let's say there's two of you and you can't come to agreement and it's a legitimate difference all right it's not bogus it's not stupid that each one of you thinks you're right you know what he says one of you ought to be strong enough in your faith to say I'm just going to let it go. I think I'm right. I think he's wrong. But you know what? I'm going to let it go. I just, I'm letting it go. 
Look what he says. He says, why not let yourself be cheated? Just let it go. Because who's judge? Who's, okay, who's the real judge that's watching the courtroom un, scene unfold? God. And he's watching, he's watching us. And you know what? If two of you, and one of you says, you know what, I'm just going to let it go. I have the ability to just say, let it go. And the other one doesn't want to let it go, but you say, I'm going to let, I'll let you in. I'm going to let you in. If you think I owe you $5,000, I'm going to give you $5,000. And God watches that courtroom scene. Who's God going to honor? Who's he going to honor? He's the ultimate judge. He's going to honor the one who says, you know what? The essence of the body of Christ is who we submit to one another in love. I'm willing to submit to you in practical application of $5,000. Even if I think I'm right. In verse 8, Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. Now, what's the contrast? The contrast is just let go. Allow yourself to be cheated. So what? It's just money. Let yourself be cheated. It goes against the very principle of the church. What's the principle, foundational principle of the church? We submit to each other in love. Paul says it would be better to be wrong than to sue a brother in Christ. What is this, what is this saying to the watching world that should be seeing Christ? If we take our grievances to a secular court and the secular court watches the church what does it say to the secular world that we are not really who we say we are it's just wrong you want your way and then satan uses that self-driven desire to lead you into sin all right here we go verse nine now, he changes direction. I'm, I'm not skipping verses. I'm going to the next verse. And look at, look at the linkage. We're going from a courtroom suing each other scene to verse 9. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, that's serious. That judge is serious. Those who do wrong aren't going to get into the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, we've just gone from lawsuits to sex, okay? Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are, by the way, we consider that first group felonies. Now we're going to get into the misdemeanors. Or are thieves or are greedy or are drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All of us were once like the world. Right? Anybody look at that list and say none of those had application in your life? I always wonder what I'd do if one of you raised your hand. Say, yep, none of them. Liar. Because I tell you what, I'm on there more than once. All of us were once like the world, but that was supposed to change when we came to Christ. It would be better to be cheated and just give in than to defile the body of Christ with the selfish and prideful desire to win at the expense of a brother. It'd be better to lose. Just be better to lose. Yes, L listen carefully. There is freedom in Christ. Is there freedom in Christ? Yes, there's freedom. But not everything is good for the body. Is there freedom? Now, I want you to notice this transition. We've gone in one chapter, chapter 6, we've gone from um, lawsuits among believers to that list of sexual sins all the way down to cheating. And now all of a sudden, he's going to talk about 
freedom. Freedom to do what? Here we go, verse 12. You say I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say, but you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Can you understand how much material we've just covered inside, what is that, 13 verses? Well, how, much, how many different topics have just been addressed by Paul? 13 verses. I must not become a slave to anything. You, you say, and, and listen, what was the gospel Paul was delivering to the Gentile church? You're free from the law of Moses. You don't have to become a Jew to become a follower of Jesus. You don't have to have the circumcision. You don't have to have these 614 mitzvahs, these 614 rules about what you can do on Saturday and you can't do during this and you can't eat this and you do that. You, you, you have freedom. You have freedom. Understand, if you don't understand what he's talking about, you're going to miss the idea. He says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. Paul, you said I can do anything, that I'm under grace. I can do anything. I'm free. And Paul says, yeah, that's exactly what I said. You're free, but not everything is good for you. Don't think freedom means everything goes. That's not what it means. That's not freedom. I must not become a slave to anything other than Christ. I must not be controlled by anything other than Christ. The stomach, here's his example. Not my example, his example. The stomach craves food, and reality is we are a slave to that craving. I must eat. Right? Your stomach craves food. In fact, if you don't eat, you'll die. Jesus reveals that he has food that satisfies that craving. What? Everybody in here's got it. Some of us have got it bigger than others. Okay? What? We crave food. That our, our human flesh craves food. It comes from God, this craving. It, he, that's how he satisfies the, the fuel system of our body. But Jesus says that he has food that satisfies that craving we cannot comprehend. But one day we will. Let me prove it to you. He is in his encounter with the woman Samaritan at the whale. And he says something to her that, whew, here's what he says. John 4, 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. Why? Because they were starving when they got there. And they went to get food while he has a conversation with this lady. So they come back and they've got some food. And they're, they're telling, Rabbi, eat something. Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Does that mean he's got a backpack with some protein bars in it? Uh, is that what he's talking about? No. Did someone, here's their answer. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Jesus said, my nourishment, please don't miss this. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. What's his craving? What's their craving? Their craving is my belly's growling. That monster needs to be fed, right? It's growling. Jesus says, I have something else I crave for. To do the will of my Father and to complete the assignment he gave me to do. He says, this is my fuel. This is my desire. And then Paul does something. Paul turns a specific and literal corner and says, you can't say. In the middle of that discussion, he says, you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. Why can't you? I meet a whole lot of people that can say it. What do you mean you can't say it? They are cravings. There are cravings of the human body. Let's admit it. Our human flesh has cravings. We all have them. Yes, but sexual, sexual immorality is not from God. Paul says you can't say it came from God. 
It came from Satan. Our bodies were created to serve God, not to be defiled by the adversary of God. Verse 13, next verse. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by His power, just as He raised our Lord from the dead. You, he's done it again. He is connecting sexual immorality to the resurrection. And by the way, he says that sexual immorality will keep you from experiencing the resurrection. Why? Because that craving did not come from God. There's another power that has perverted your craving. There's another spirit. Our bodies were created to serve God. And that serving God craving. What did Jesus say? Go back up to the top. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. He cares about our physical body. He is planning to raise our physical body just like he did Jesus. Let's stop there for a moment, okay? You will be you in heaven. You will be you in heaven. So many people struggle with the concept of the resurrection. You will be you in heaven. You are human. You will be human. The difference is you won't be a human flesh subject to death, but you will be you in heaven. Which means that if, if I get to heaven and I don't know any of you all, and I don't know my wife, and I don't know my children, and I don't know my daddy and my mama, I didn't go to heaven. Somebody else went. They just looked like me. I'm going to be me in heaven. And this flesh, you're going to have flesh. What did Jesus look like after the resurrection? As you think, where, where are you getting this, Terry? I'm getting this from the one who rose from the dead. And he appeared over a period of 40 days to over 500 people. Why? So that they would all know that, you know what? He is flesh. And his hands had scars. And he ate fish. And he didn't just fall out the bottom. Is it going to be different? It's going to be different. I'm not trying to paint a picture that everything's the same. I don't think everything is the same. But you're going to be you. You're going to be you in perfect human form. And, and with that said, with that said, let me read again verse 13 through 14. You can't say that our bodies, what, what am I talking about? I'm talking about this thing he's going to resurrect. You can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about these bodies. Why? Why does he care about these bodies? Here, here's the answer. Next verse. God's going to raise that body. No, he's not going to raise another body. Why do you think the graves are going to open? Why are the dead in Christ going to rise? Why is the dust in those tombs going to come out? Why? Because it's that body he's going to resurrect. That one. That one. He cares about these bodies. Because you know what? That body is you. It's you. Now your soul and that body are matched up. Whether you like, whether you're happy with your body or not. That's what you got paired with. By the way, that body in heaven will be perfect. It will not be, somebody asked me, if you see if, if your last memory of your grandfather was 88 years old when you see him in heaven you'll believe he'll look like he's 88 no i don't believe he'll look like he's 88 i think he'll be in the prime of his life and guess what in 500 years he'll still look like he's in the prime of his life because there is no aging he is in perfect human flesh that resurrected body. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about their bodies. And why? God will raise us from the dead by His power, just like He raised the Lord. Well, I tell you, I read how He raised the Lord. 
And Jesus says, touch my hands. Touch them. Touch them. Here, put your hand in my side. See, it's, I'm not a ghost. It's me. Anything to eat? So, it really does matter how we treat this physical body. Now he's going to get detail, okay? Verse 15. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Let that sink in. My body, because I have come to Jesus. I've illustrated in the church. He is in me, I am in him, and we are in, in the Father. I want to say it again. I am in Jesus, Jesus is in me, and the two of us are in the Father. And then he says this, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? I don't need to explain what that means. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? I hope I don't have to explain what that means either. For the scriptures say the two are united into one but the person who is joined to the lord is what one spirit with him i am in him he is in me we are in the father so so let's paint the picture okay if i am in him and he is in me and we are in the father and then i go and unite myself with the prostitute what happens to this fellowship no big deal no big deal Oh, I am free to do anything, right? I live in the age of grace. Sin increases, grace increases more. Sin, 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 grace, 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 grace. Sin, 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 grace, 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 grace. Grace always wins, right? How foolish. How foolish. Why did he write this? When you became a Christian you became connected to Jesus as a part of his body so would you then connect your body which is now connected to Jesus to a prostitute not, not if you really recognized what this means what did you think it meant when God told Adam and Eve that the two would become one flesh have you ever really thought about in the garden of Eden God says to Adam and Eve, and the man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What does it mean? It is a picture of sexuality. The two will become one. And it is a picture of the unity of two people, two individuals, submitting to each other so that they become as if they were one person. What do you think it meant? Uh, they moved into the same house? No, that's not it. This is why sexual sin is unlike any other sin. Because it so affects the body which is connected to Christ. So what should a believer do when this craving comes? What if Satan and his demons bring the craving of sexual immorality to your house what are you supposed to do run i didn't write it he did verse 18 run from sexual sin no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does for sexual immorality is a sin against your whole body your own body don't you realize that your body is the temple of the holy spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God, you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you at a high price. So you must honor God with your body. I want you to pause with me for a moment and ask the question. After reading the first six chapters from Paul to the church at Corinth, can anyone imagine why the modern American church is struggling so much with this battle over sexual immorality? Why is this issue in the church at all today? It's a real question. After reading six chapters in the first Corinthians, this is a letter to the Gentile church in the church age. Can anybody guess why the American church is struggling with sexual immorality? 
why so many churches are endorsing homosexuality. Not just endorsing it, but applauding it. It's the ultimate virtue of tolerance, which brings us to a new level of enlightenment. Why? How, how, can you, how do you come to this conclusion? There's only one answer, by the way. The church has abandoned the Word of God. It has abandoned the Word of God. You can't read 1 Corinthians and come to a conclusion that you're going to ordain homosexuals to lead your church. You can't come to that conclusion. You'll have to throw this book out. And I'm going to ask you, what's going to happen when you throw the book out? Can you have Jesus and get rid of the book? <laughs> Chapter 7 opens with a call to celibacy. <laughs> no wonder. What's the context? Chapter 7 opens with a call to celibacy. celibacy. Yeah, yeah, that too. Celibacy. Verse 1. Now regarding the question you ask in your letter, yes, it is good to live a celibate life. And just, because, just in case there's three people here who don't know what that word means, it means that you don't have sexual relations at all, okay? I remember growing up in a church, I was a long time, I wondered what a Gentile was and nobody would tell me. I was embarrassed. So maybe you're wondering what a celibate is. But verse 2, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Some churches even today, require that pastors or their leaders be unmarried and celibate. And yes, that can be a biblical concept, though it's not required, not scripturally. If not celibate, then each of you gets one. Each of you gets one. You won't need more than that. And after 37 years of marriage, I can't even imagine wanting more than one. Okay? One's enough okay it's enough and understand this just like joining the body of christ you must be willing to submit to each other for this to work if you don't want to submit don't get married i do pre-marriage counseling and i have this thing that i go through and you ought to see the bug eyes of some of these young people who are sitting in front of my desk and i'll go through a list of things and say if, if you don't want, example, if you don't want to, I look at the, the wife, the, the to-be, if you don't want to submit to him, don't get married. And then I look at him, if you don't want to submit to her, don't get married. You don't have to get married. And then, they, then I'll just pause, I don't say nothing, give him about 10 seconds. You don't have to get married, you don't have to. If you don't want to submit to her, don't get married. If you don't want to submit to him, don't get married. Because down deep, they're thinking, I ain't submitting to him. <laughs> then don't get married. But I'm really being serious. Then don't do it. You don't have to. You know what the problem is? A lot of people, they, they want to they get married, but they have no intention of doing anything that it'll take to be married. No intention whatsoever. If you don't want to give someone control or free access to your body, listen carefully. Some of you are going to blush in a minute. If you, women, don't want to give your husband free access to your body, don't get married. Did somebody say amen back there? <laughs> or was that a hiccup? I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> and vice versa if you don't want to give someone free access to your body don't get married stay single verse 3 the husband should fulfill by the way when I do pre-marriage counseling I read this to every one of them the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The, wife's, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband. 
And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. If you're not into that, stay single. Is this complicated? This is not complicated. If you're not into that, if you read that, if I read that to that, married, that couple wanting to get married, and they're thinking, well, that ain't going to happen, then you ought to stay single. However, don't, don't let society pressure you into marriage. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why there's so much divorce. There's a societal pressure. You get, especially a girl, you get a girl that she's in her mid-twenties, she hasn't got hitched yet, and everybody what? Uh, yeah, are you still looking? It is better to marry than to fall into sexual immorality outside of marriage. Verse 5. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. Again, talking about marriage. Unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time, so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. But I wish everyone were single just as I am. But God, gave, but God gives to some the gift of marriage and to others the gift of singleness. Now I've met quite a few married people that said they wish they'd accepted the other gift. I've met a lot of people that wish they had never married, and I've also met a lot of people that wish they could marry. It's interesting. Be very careful about thinking your contentment can be found in someone else. If I'm going to say something important, here it comes. If a wife thinks that her life's contentment will be coming from her husband, she has found a miserable life. Your life's contentment must come from Jesus Christ. Your husband can never play that role. And the other way is true. Husbands, if you think your life's contentment will come from your wife, you've got a miserable life coming. Your contentment, the joy of your heart, comes from Christ. Not from your spouse. You cannot create an environment to where your expectations are that partner of your is going to be superhuman. They can't do it. We can't do it. People can't do it. It's unrealistic. Be very careful about thinking your contentment will always is always somewhere other than where you are right now. I'd be happy if. No, you won't. No, if, you're not, if you can't find contentment where you are right now, you won't find contentment when you move to the next place. Because contentment has more to do with the inside than any circumstance in your life. Verse 8. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried, just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry it's better to marry than to burn with lust. But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. But if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. The decision to marry is a till we stop breathing decision. I'll say it again. If you're not up to that, don't get married. Staying single is much easier to modify than marriage. Amen? It's a lot easier to modify staying single. You ought to try the staying single if you're unsure. Because it's a lot easier to modify that one than the other. One can be temporary, the other is to be permanent. But what about people who become Christians after they're married? Okay. This is when I will get in trouble tonight and I'm planning for it, okay? What about people who become Christians after they're married and they find themselves married and or they find themselves married to an unbeliever? What then? Does Paul address it? Yes, he does. Here he comes. Verse 12. Now I will speak to the rest of you. Though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. Here he comes. If a Christian man has a wife who is not a believer, 
And she is willing to continue living with him. He must not leave her. Are you with me? If a Christian man has a wife that's unbeliever, she's willing to stay in this relationship with him. Just because she's an unbeliever is not grounds to divorce her. Okay, here we go. Next one. And if a Christian woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. Okay? Now it gets complicated. Verse 14. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage. And the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not, not be holy, but now they are holy. This brings up a topic of sanctification of children that is deep and it is controversial. I know that very well. By the way, the concept of the age of accountability is found nowhere in the Bible. My entire life I was raised in the church and taught that people reached an age of accountability until I started reading the Bible and found out it ain't in there. I'm not saying that there isn't an age of accountability. I'm saying it's not in the Bible. Some of you would say, what does it mean, age of accountability? Well, let me give you a picture. The Jewish people celebrate what they call a bar mitzvah. At the age of 13, a Jewish family will take a boy, the 13-year-old son, and have a bar mitzvah. That ushers him from childhood to manhood. They, the Jewish people, call it 13 years for males. It's a bat mitzvah for a girl. They do girls at 12. Why? Girls develop quicker than boys. So the bat mitzvah for a girl who is ushered from childhood to adulthood is 12. So without saying it, they say that the age of accountability, being able to accept responsibility for your life choices, for a boy is 13 and a girl is 12. That's not in the Bible. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying it's not in the Bible. It might, it's just cultural relevance. I will say this, that with all three of my children, I observed that ceremony with all three of my children. When Chad turned 13, we had a bar mitzvah. Uh, I'm sure it was very non-Jewish, but we had a ceremony. And in that ceremony, I brought Chad in front of the family, and I told him and the family that from this day forward, I will treat you differently. From this day forward, I expect from you different than you were as a child. I will hold you accountable to things that I did not hold you accountable to before. I did that for Chad and Audrey and Michael. Now, here's where I'm going with this. What is it that makes the children holy in verse 14? Go back up and read it. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage. What are we talking about? A believer married to an unbeliever. Stay together. Man, woman, doesn't matter. One of you believes, stay together. Why? Why? What is it that makes a child holy in verse 14? This is in the Bible. What is it? For a Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy. But now they are holy. What makes the kids holy? What is it? When, when one of them is a Christian, the child is rendered holy. Why? Why? Stay with me. What happens in a marriage? Two become one. When one of the two is holy and touches the unholy, the child that comes from that union, Paul says, is holy because of the one. Stay with me. Is this controversial? Oh, yeah. When two become one, there are two spiritual events that take place. 
One is to the unbelieving spouse, and the other is to the children that are born from the union of a believer and an unbeliever. So what happens, let's use this example, that the man, the husband, is, is a believer and the wife is not. Does his holiness, does his sanctification, I'll use a churchy word, does his sanctification sanctify her when he becomes one with her? That's question number one. Then when he is sanctified and marries her and they have a child, does his sanctification sanctify that child? These are the questions. One question, second question. Paul clearly states that there is sanctification. The word means to be rendered holy. Upon the children of parents that have at least one parent as a believer. Listen carefully. Paul says, not Terry, that sanctification occurs to a child that has at least one parent that is a believer. Now, let me read the New American Standard of that verse. A very literal translation. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Rendered holy. Let me put the word in there. The unbelieving husband. Let's say he's not a believer, but he marries a believing woman. The unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy through her believing husband. For if not, if one of them isn't holy... One of them isn't sanctified. If of or otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What is it that makes them clean? What is it? What is it that makes them clean? The sanctification of at least one of their parents. That brings up the next logical question. Nobody wants to ask it. What if neither of the parents are sanctified? Are all children saved? This is a difficult topic. And Paul even uses the three words, translated to English anyway, might be saved. Might be saved. He won't even use it in the affirmative. He only uses it in the might be saved. Verse 15 and 16, listen carefully. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such case, the Christian husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husband might be saved because of you? Now, in this case, who's the believer? The wife. Wives, don't you realize that if you stick with that unbelieving guy, he might be saved because you're a believer. Why? Because perhaps your sanctification made one with him might sanctify him. It keeps going. And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? Same thing, just reverse. Now let me read that same verse in the New American Standard. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So here's my conclusion to that very deep topic I don't know and because I don't know I want both of you to be sanctified that's my answer I don't know and because I don't know there's only one way to be sure you know what it is if the husband and the wife are sanctified that child that child is sanctified because that which was holy produces that which is holy. Now, is there a time when that child, then sanctified from believing parents, reaches a point where they will then have to choose sanctification? Yes, yes, yes. Can you live forever under the sanctification of your parents? No, you cannot. No, you cannot. Where's that line? I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know. So what's the answer? Be sanctified. Be sanctified. Be rendered holy. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. And then you won't ever have to say, might be saved. Because the blood of Jesus never refers to might be saved. The blood of Jesus always saves. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have sanctified us. You have rendered us holy by the blood of Christ. And for that, we worship you forever. Thank you for your word, which is powerful and true. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us mercy and understanding so that we might even have the possibility to live under the authority of your word. Now, today, we ask that you empower us to live in the power of your word and the name of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here.